Tonight on Farage, should working from home be a right? The government have backed away from legislation on this. The trade unions don't appear to be happy. We will debate this and not hold back. Are we about to enter a trade war with the European Union if we remove that border in the Irish Sea? Marcus Fish MP joins me on that. And Stephen Roberts, former Deputy Assistant Commissioner at the Metropolitan Police, joins me on Talking Pints to talk all things policing and law and order, including insulate Britain protesters. You remember, don't you, when the pandemic struck and we were all told to stay at home and the April weather in 2020 was, I think, the best it had been for 50 or 60 years. And we were all working from home. Well, we were supposed to be working from home. I think a lot of us were enjoying the sunshine. If we were lucky enough to be in the garden, perhaps drinking a lunchtime beer, it all seemed really rather wonderful. And from that moment, work from home has become very popular indeed. A poll says 56% of people would like to spend more time working from home. I get it. I understand it. You perhaps haven't got to get on a train and commute into London. You're not going out and buying sandwiches, beers on a Thursday night for people you work with. It's much cheaper working from home. You can save a lot of money. I've always been very sceptical about two things. The first is productivity. I completely get it. If you're a computer programmer or someone like that, probably being at home, uh, you know, on your own, without the distractions of being in an office, you probably can get more done. But for most people, are they really more productive working from home? Well, there's a knock at the door because there's the latest parcel delivery of something, or the dog's not well, or the kids are off school, and there's a whole, oh, and the phone rings, and there's a whole host of distractions. So I'm very skeptical about people's productivity working from home. I really, really am. And the other real objection that I have to it is it's really bad for young people. Young people in life, in the main, get on and learn by being with older people, by being with more experienced people. And that's how they get on. That's how they learn things. So I don't think work from home is a good idea in most cases. Now, we were expecting yesterday an employment bill to come from the government. There were 38, of course, other pieces of legislation, most of which there simply isn't time to get through Parliament. But the employment bill wasn't there. And so any right enshrined in law to work from home is not going to get put forward by this government. Boris Johnson, in fact, sort of went rather on the attack. Uh, you know, he's saying, look, it's a complete disgrace that HGV drivers cannot get their driving licences updated, that the wait for passports is as long as it is. And of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been going around civil servants' offices, leaving notes saying, sorry, I missed you. And when you see some of the figures for Whitehall, when you see some of the Whitehall departments are still only running at between 25 and 35% of their normal staffing levels. So you tell me, is working from home something that should be a right? Give me your views, farage at gbnews.uk. I just think we have to try and get back to normal as much as we can. And I think, frankly, a lot of those that say they want to work from home two or three days a week are taking the mickey now. Not everybody agrees with that position. Uh, one of them, I think, is going to be Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA. And your trade union represents professionals and managers 
in public service. Yes. So kind of Whitehall, really. Uh, Whitehall, but but across the country. I mean, most of the civil service isn't around SW1. It's actually outside the M25. Yeah. So there is a little bit of a London-centric dialogue about this, but <coughs> actually this is an issue across the country. So let's take London, just yeah. to sort of, sort of kick off with London. So I'm a civil servant. I work in a Whitehall. I get a London waiting for doing that. But if I work from home, I've got to pay for the train. I'm not going to get a sandwich at lunchtime. I'm not going to buy that round of drinks on a Thursday night. I mean, of course I want to work from home. I'm a whole lot better off. But when you, I mean, you know, seriously, when you look yeah. at the backlogs that Boris pointed out yesterday, the backlogs, driving licenses, passports, isn't that an argument of getting teams of people together in offices working with each other? So, so I think that you need to separate some of those issues. It's really disappointing what the Prime Minister said yesterday. Um, and also, he knows, as other ministers know, that the backlog in, uh, for passports has nothing to do with working from home. The passport office actually doesn't feature that. It's not a great thing in there because of the nature of the work. It's about the demand for passports and the fact that they're not able to recruit staff. So one of the difficulties of this is this becomes a distraction for every kind of excuse from government about why something's not working. All right, well, let's try ministers are then saying, well, that's because people are working well, from home. Let's try DVLA, shall we? Let's try DVLA, where, as you know, there was a strike yes. that took place not all that long. And these things happen, I know, but there was a strike of the thousands of people that, that, that could be in that office in Swansea. It's about a third full at the moment. And we've got people, professional HGV drivers, unable to earn their living and do their job. Yeah, absolutely. Are you telling me working from home is, is, is actually no. operational? If you look at sense? what happened in, in DVLA, it had one of the biggest COVID outbreaks in, in Wales. It has a huge backlog as a result of that, as lots of areas of the public sector do. And I think this is the, the reality of this discussion. You can talk about bits of, of work that can be done from home and lots of employers have areas of their work or parts of their workforce who actually can work as productively at home or can work as productively in the office and most people actually want a bit of both. Most people don't actually well, want to, they, just want, well, of course want they to. want a bit of both but come on you and I both know people aren't as productive at home are they? Well actually some of the evidence has shown that they're more productive so I, you know I spent uh, an hour and a half, well, I, mean, I, I spent an hour and a half travelling in this morning, yep. actually research from LA has shown that people are spending their commute time working for their employer. So they're actually spending more time doing work for their employer because they're not having to spend the time um, uh, travelling in, particularly in somewhere like London where you know what the commute times are like. And when you talked about young workers, young workers yeah. absolutely yeah. benefit from being in the workplace. Yeah. But they also know that they can't live and work anywhere near the capital. So if, if they're only having to come into the office two days a week, they can actually buy a property, one of the big issues that, that the country's facing, because they can live further away because they're not actually tied to an office. So this is a nuanced argument. It's not about saying working from home is perfect for everyone or works for everyone, and it's also not saying that tied to the office right. is the way forward either. The TUC boss, Francis O'Grady, has accused the government of turning its back on workers. That's a bit over the top, isn't it? I think we, we've heard from a long time that there are going to be an employment rights bill, that we are going to yep. enhance workers' rights. And, and it's a piece of legislation that's been promised many times. And I think it was really disappointing that it was, and it's still not a priority for government. It's not just about working from home. There were maternity rights that, that were supposed to be included. The issue of workers being able to keep the tips that people give mm. Um, mm. Uh, in good faith. So there are a lot of areas... Which of, I do agree with very yeah, strongly. There's a lot yeah. of areas around employment law that the, the, the government have been right. saying with their new freedoms that they're going to do that they haven't done. And I think that's there's no sense now about what the government's agenda is when it comes to employment rights and workers' rights. 
Dave Penman, you haven't convinced me yet. I want to see Whitehall full of people. I don't believe they're more productive at home, but I do get the argument. There's a lot of time wasted on trains sometimes. And I do get that argument. I'm not buying into it. We'll return to it another day. And thank you very much thank indeed you. for coming in and joining this debate. And, you know, as Dave said there, we all had expected this employment bill. We had expected legislation. And we have lived, haven't we, through a time where workers' rights have fundamentally changed particularly when it comes to people having children, uh, you know, and that applies to maternity rights, paternity rights. So is it a big shock? Is it a big shock? And I'm joined by Gillian Howard, employment lawyer. Is it a big shock that this legislation, this much vaunted legislation, just didn't appear yesterday? Yes, it is a shock. Uh, we just can't understand or have it explained. It, it's, it's dreadful. It's a shocking waste of time. Um, and uh, for, for most workers who were expecting the provisions in the employment bill and lawyers as well it is um it's shocking i mean a lot of workers were very much hoping that work from home or flexible working or call it what you will would effectively be enshrined in some form of legislation and clearly i, I think it's that aspect perhaps of the legislation that's frightened the government uh, more than anything else i mean should it be a right for a worker to say they can spend mondays and fridays at home well Yes and no. Uh, I mean, <laughs> well, if well, you have well, a right, no, well, if you have a right. Either right, or. One of those <laughs> no, not either, no not either or. <laughs> yes, if you have a right, then you have a corresponding duty. So the corresponding duty of any worker who is allowed, permitted to work from home or has a right to work from home has to work from home. And as you say, they mustn't skive off, they mustn't um, do domestic duties, they must do their work. But actually, there is no evidence that workers who are working from home uh, have worked less productively. In fact, there is evidence to show that they've been more productive. They can work, for example, if their <coughs> children go to, to bed, once they put their children to bed, the employees go back to the computer and, and do some work, some extra you know, work. I've found all the best things in life have happened because I've been with people and you've bounced ideas off people or you've thought, goodness me, she's doing that rather better than I am. And actually being together fe isn't feeling part of a team, an essential part, whether it's a civil service department or a private company, isn't that what gets the best results? Not being on your own. Well, I think it's, it's both. I think you're absolutely right that work is also a social event. It, you, yeah. You're quite right. You do learn from watching how other people cope with a difficult telephone call or cope with writing a report. And you get the support. And I absolutely agree that um, what was called the new normal isn't the new normal. The, the normal, the norm, is to work from your office or from your workplace. Yeah. It isn't normal to work from home. So I do dispute and disagree with those who say, well, well the new norm is to work from home. It's not, is it? We're no. all, uh, don't you think in two years' time we're all going to be back in the offices just as we were before the pandemic? I'm not quite so sure about that. I think it, the employer's view of the correct working model is changing uh, and certainly for example women and men who are taking parental leave and who need to work from home because they've got children to look after or elderly dependents look after employers are getting used to that kind of that model but i don't think working from home full time will ever come into the workplace no. or the workers and should the government put something in legislation about the right to work from home or should we leave it between employers and employees? I personally think we should leave it because most employers are very reasonable yep. and virtually 
all workers that I come across are hard-working, decent, conscientious people who don't skive off. Julian Howard, I agree with that completely. The idea that pieces of legislation solve everything, that doesn't actually work. Thank you very much indeed. Now, we've heard an awful lot, haven't we? about the Irish border. It all started off, of course, to begin with, with Theresa May's backstop. That got ditched and we were given this oven-ready new deal by the Prime Minister and very explicit promises that there would not be a border down the Irish Sea. Well, we are in a mess that is entirely of the Prime Minister's own making. Lord Frost sat here two nights ago and said, look, we had to end the impasse, and that is what they did. I feel it's a mess of our own making, but we're in a funny old position right now because clearly Northern Ireland's been put in a totally impossible position. A part of the United Kingdom has been annexed, effectively. Something's got to be done. Liz Truss is talking tough about invoking Article 16. The European Union, of course, don't like this one little bit. They've been wholly uncooperative on Northern Ireland right from the very start. It's as if we're going to sort of smuggle inferior goods through Northern Ireland into the Republic, which of course is total nonsense. But when they threaten a scrapping of the deal, a scrapping of the trade deal, are they serious? Should we be worried? Well, Marcus Fish, Member of Parliament for Yeovil, joins me in the studio. Good evening. Hi. Well, all sounds quite serious, doesn't it? We've got Mr Sefcovic from the European Commission and various Belgium leaders and others saying they will do such things to us. Should we be worried? I don't think that it would be right or fair of them to think in that way. And I think when they, well, they see are. what we have uh, been thinking about, what we're really thinking about is a reasonable evolution of the protocol, very much within the spirit of the protocol to preserve peace in Northern Ireland and stability in Northern Ireland and solve the problems that the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland agree there are with the protocol and they support uh, reform of it, that's the thing that we just have no option at this point but to do, given that the EU hasn't been willing to talk about ways that it can evolve, as had been foreshadowed by the agreement itself. When this all first kicked off, and I remember being in the European mm. Parliament immediately after the Brexit vote and then through all the years of agony and negotiation. And it was, I mean, thank goodness we're past that yes, bit. Thank goodness. Although we've got yes. this to deal with. True. But it was interesting because we were told by the bosses of the EU the, at the time, the Junkers and then the von der Leyen's, that the protocol was necessary to preserve the integrity of the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, the Peace Agreement that we came to in 1998. Now it seems there's a different argument being put. It now seems the unionist community are arguing that actually the protocol is threatening the Good Friday Agreement on the basis that consent mm -hmm. has not fully been given and that we might start to begin to even consider returning to the bad old days. How do you see the settlement of the Good Friday Agreement in relation to the protocol? Well, we certainly don't want to return to the bad old days. <coughs> and. Um, one thing that maybe had been forgotten by some in the EU was the integral part of the Belfast Agreement, which was the east-west strand of it. And that's obviously a thing that unionists take very seriously. Yeah. But ev everybody in Northern Ireland who thinks about it should and does take it seriously. And that is really what we're trying to think about ways of preserving. How do we take a reasonable approach to giving the EU maximum assurance about the integrity of their single market 
while at the same time allowing yeah, goods I mean, that are destined I mean, to remain as, in Northern Ireland they're, they're as if we're to come through a green channel. Are we yeah. sort of potential smugglers or of, of substandard goods? Or it, it isn't, no. Is the government going to act? Well, I very much hope it will, and I believe it will. Um, it's essential that we get this, this green channel. It doesn't mean the EU get no information about what's in the green channel. There's a, a mass of commercial data mm. uh, that particularly the big supermarkets and the big traders have put in place through a new system that they set up a year and a half ago. And that is what we can provide to the EU to really give them very, very great degree well, of knowledge as to what is passing into that, that territory. Let's see how cooperative they are. Final thought, Marcus Fish. A pretty ghastly set of results for the Conservatives last Thursday. One in four seats across the UK that they stood in, that they held, lost. Uh, your part of the world. Uh, you know, will you, will you lose your seat to the Lib Dems if Boris stays on as leader? No, I don't think that that's the case. Um, I think we, uh, we have a very good record in Somerset and we actually picked up some uh, council seats. We got good young people involved, Hang good on, the women. Dems are now running the council. I know, it's, that's well, very, you very can, annoying. You, you can try True. and put a positive no, well, spin look, on it. But it's, it's worth saying that it wasn't quite as bad as I'd feared, to be honest. However, it is true that we need to, uh, to have a laser-like focus on the issues that matter to people for the future, particularly on cost of living. Mm. I've been talking to ministers in recent <coughs> days about how we can really get ways in place to actually reduce people's experience of price inflation. I'm, I'm against just subsidizing people to pay the higher prices. It's much better if we can <coughs> limit the prices in the first place. And there are things I think that we can do. Well, we need to hear them that, fairly quickly. The government we need to hear them fairly yet. quickly. Yeah. I don't doubt, Marcus, that Boris was the right man for December 2019. Is he the right man now? Well, I think he can be, absolutely. But I, I have said in public that I think the current setup... Not that he is, but he can be. I think the current setup needs to change to be more flexible on, on some of these economic issues in particular. That's going to be the real story of the next two years. The economics are going to be difficult, and we don't want to give uh, the Bank of England any harder a job to do to sort of cool down the inflation which is there in the economy because of the pandemic, because of the war and other things. <laughs> and because yes. of the money printing which has been going on. Uh, so the more that we can get that inflation. price level under control through things we can do, the less pressure there will be on Bank of England to jack up interest rates and squash it with demand destruction, which no one wants to see. Should working from home be a right enshrined in law? Some of your responses coming in to that. One viewer says, as long as the work gets done, does it matter where the work is done? I'm just still very sceptical about it being done. Another says, working from home is great until your employer realises they can employ people in India or Bangladesh to do the same job from their homes at a lot less cost. Another says, people need offices to talk, to meet, to communicate, to socialise and to laugh. Laughter. Yes, I remember when I first worked in London in offices, they were full of laughter and joy and fun. We need human contact. Absolutely we do. And Nikki says, people work where the employer asks. That's how it works in the real world and the last thing we need is more rights. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that and I must say I don't think we need legislation on this. This is something that can be sorted out between the employer and the employee. I still believe the best results come when people work together physically in teams. Now they seek him here, they seek him there. A few months ago, 
we had the Gravesham MP, Adam Holloway, coming on to discuss a matter with us, and he was in Ukraine. We couldn't quite believe it. Well, he joins us again this evening. Adam. Good evening. Good evening. So where are you this evening? Um, I am on the eastern side of the Black Sea in former Soviet Georgia in the capital Tbilisi. Um, as your viewers will know, um, this is a country of some 4 million people, 20% of whom's territory is already occupied by Russia um, in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Indeed, I've literally, to the panic, I think, of your production staff, I've literally just got in from uh, the edge of South Ossetia, um, where uh, 200 meters from the road I was sitting on uh, are Russian troops. I mean, where we are right now, we're 30, 30 kilometers or so away from Russian tanks that have been here for over a decade. So I'm here just taking a look at this place, which you know could be next on the list after Ukraine and Moldova, unless we get it right. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, presumably there are many in Tbilisi very, very scared at the moment. Yeah, I think people, I think people are anxious. Um, the, I mean, the government here is quite close to Russia. You know, the energy companies are owned by Russia. The, the vehicle we were just traveling in, you know, we refueled at a Russian-owned petrol station uh, with, with Russian petrol. But absolutely, there's a great deal of anxiety. And of course, Georgia is not the same as Ukraine. You know, Ukraine's got 10 times as many people and is very much larger. This is a country of four million people, um, and defending it would be, you know, altogether a, a different thing. And I think what people here are looking for is to be under a security umbrella. Yeah, and that's more or less what Boris Johnson was saying today in Sweden, wasn't it? Although, of course, Sweden that has been neutral for the last couple of hundred years. And I just want to get your take on something, Adam. Uh, you know, I have felt for a very long time that our continued expansion of EU and NATO to the east was something that Putin would use uh, with his people as an excuse for whatever he might do. And indeed, his 9th of May speech echoed much of that. And when I say that, by the way, I'm not justifying any of his actions. But does it to you, as a former military man, a member of parliament and a traveller in this part of the world, does it make sense for us to effectively be encouraging Finland and Sweden to join NATO at this moment in time? Yeah, you know, Nigel, yet again, you're raising a very interesting point that mainstream politics should also be raising. Apologies to your viewers for being a little bit esoteric here. But in, I think, 1997, a, a very elderly former director of the CIA called George Kennard wrote an article about how he thought that it was a big strategic mistake by the West to shift the borders of NATO right up to the edge of Russia, uh, because this plays very badly to that group in Russian politics, well represented by President Putin and indeed much of the Russian population, that thinks that the biggest disaster of all was the end of the Soviet Union. So for them, missiles and NATO on their borders is very worrying. I mean, we had that, of course, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you have that on the one hand. But on the other hand, 
if countries like Georgia or Ukraine, all the Baltic states, are sovereign nations, it must be up to them whether or not they apply to join NATO or the EU. But of course, it must be up to us whether we wish to you know, put them together, as, uh, take them in. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, a country can want to join, but clearly the organisation has to decide whether strategically it makes sense. You see, my real worry, Adam, with all of this is that militarily things are clearly not going the way that Putin thought they would. That we are talking continually about sort of Nuremberg 2.0 war crimes trials that will take place shortly uh, as we see it after this conflict is over. Is there a danger, Adam Holloway, that what we're doing is boxing into a corner with no route out, with no real negotiations taking place? Is there a danger we're boxing this man in, a man who increasingly looks less rational than he did a decade ago? And are we thus risking something truly horrendous? You know, I agree with you again, Nigel. I mean, the, the, I think we have to be very careful about what we what we say. I mean, you've always with it, with anybody with a human being or with a wild animal, you've got to give them, you know, a, a way out. And um, I'm not sure some of this language is very helpful. But again, on the other hand, um, going go back to your previous uh, point and question, I think deterrence is very important. I mean, people here say that actually what they want now is they want lots of anti-tank weapons and lots of anti-aircraft missiles so that the Russians would be deterred from doing it. And of course, you know, Ukraine mm -hmm. is not a NATO member. And guess what? It's got the horrendous things that we're seeing on our screens every day. However, the, the Baltic states are NATO members and nothing's happened. And, you know, I think we all know from, from our own lives that you know, when you have a, a, a bully, you've got to stand up to them and you've got to deter them. But equally, back to your point, you know, we mustn't overly provoke them either. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Huge debates. Adam, thank you very much in joining us today from Georgia. And we'll look forward to speaking to you again from another country. Very Thanks, few Nigel. people in Britain have ever visited. Thank you very much indeed. Now, Sadiq Khan has been over on the West Coast speaking at Stanford University, mixing with his friends from Bloomberg and those sort of organisations. Of course, he's been together with Hillary Clinton. And as many of you will know, Elon Musk openly calling Twitter an organisation with a left-wing bias, saying that once his deal goes through, if it goes through, hopefully it will, uh, that Donald Trump will be welcomed back on it. This is not being greeted well by many in America. Leading Democrat senators like Elizabeth Warren saying the must takeover is a threat to democracy. Quite how she works that out, I am just not sure. But Sadiq Khan had a go. Now, Khan told an audience in Silicon Valley, he said, Trump, well, he's not my biggest fan. That's a bit of an understatement. And there's been a hell of a to and fro between the two. But what he says is that because of Trump's Twitter feed, Khan says he himself faced high levels of racial abuse and that because Trump was banned from Twitter, he actually received the least racial abuse he has over the last five years. I don't know 
whether that's true or not. I genuinely don't. I can't see why it should be. I can't see why it would be. But what it does show you, what it clearly shows you, is there are so many on the liberal left of politics, on both sides of the pond, that do not want Musk to take over Twitter. Do not want free, open debate. It's quite telling. Now, my real What the Farage moment, this happened at 7.39 this morning. Now, Michael Gove is, of course, a very senior cabinet minister, one with a, a raft of responsibilities from housing to levelling up and so on. And Gove appeared on a whole series of radio and TV channels this morning, including this, which took place at 7.39 this morning on BBC's breakfast programme, and here he is delivering his lines. But that doesn't amount to an emergency budget, um, which is what uh, uh, some people immediately thought that it did. Uh, it is an example of some commentators chasing their own tails uh, and trying to take a statement that is commonsensical, turning it into uh, a major capital letters, a big news story, um, and in fact, when the Treasury quite rightly say, calm down, then um, people, um, uh, uh, instead of recognizing that they've overinflated the story in the first place, right. then say, oh, this is clearly a split. Goodness gracious me, what on earth was that all about at 7.39 in the morning? Michael, I know it's a high pressure job being in the cabinet. I don't know what you're on, but give it a rest, for goodness sake, that was not a good look. So more of your thoughts on work from home. Anthea says, not a right, but an option, subject to employer business needs and feasibility. Sue says, if the work is done and to a good standard, why is it such an issue? A right to lay in bed all day, doing minimal work, I think not, says Marion. So there are very, very strong views on work from home. Uh, I just personally don't believe that it is the new normal. I think within a couple of years we will be back in our offices pretty much as we were before the pandemic, and I think that's a better outcome. It's that time of the day. Yes, the GB News Tavern is open. I'm joined by Stephen Roberts. <laughs> Stephen, welcome to Talking Pints. Cheers. Very good to see you. Now, 31 years in the Met, rising up to a very senior level, covering terrorism and all sorts of burglary and all sorts of things. But I see from your background, you're a, you're a, a comprehensive boy that went to Trinity College, Cambridge. Were you a fish out of water there? Uh, I was, if I wasn't the only comprehensive boy there in my year, I was certainly one of the very, very few indeed. Uh, you know, I, w I was there with the likes of Ed Sturton, Oliver Letwin, Old Etonians. Yes. Uh, yes. Most of whom knew each other. Yes. Uh, and then there was me. And I was, I was a bit, I would, I would say more of a curiosity than a fish out of water. <laughs> you mention all those names and we talk about Oxford and Cambridge and Eton. And you realise the extent to which the great institutions of state of this country are still run by people from a very, very narrow background, aren't they? Yes, that is still the case. Um, I think it's changing. Uh, just as the the sort of people going to Cambridge now is changing quite dramatically. Yeah. Uh, my son uh, went uh, went to Cambridge, uh, graduated a few years ago now. But then uh, almost half of the entrants were from a 
an ordinary comprehensive so background. Things, things so changed. things will change. But of course it will take decades for things to change because the people who graduated with him are, are now working their way up through their various trades and professions. Yeah. So was it a lifelong ambition to be a cop? No, no, not at all. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I started off thinking that I wanted to be a scientist and realised after a year of, of studying natural sciences at, at Cambridge that I was never going to be in the top drawer. Chap's um, got to know his limitations. Uh, and law seemed like a, a good thing to change too, um, because at that time I was thinking of going to patent agency uh, and mixing the two, the two areas. Um, but at the same time, there were quite a number of uh, police scholars uh, at Cambridge uh, sent their people regarded as, as having a, a future but not having had a university education, uh, so they were mature students. And talking to them, it sounded like quite good fun. And I didn't know what else I wanted to do, really. So I thought, well, if I, if I become a policeman for a couple of years, it'll, it'll give me a chance to, to decide what I really want to do as a proper job. And then 31 years later um, and Queen's Police Medal and all the rest of it. Somehow, the 30-odd years <laughs> slipped by almost, you know. Is, is policing... I mean, I just think back over the last year, the number of controversies, the Me Too controversies, the WhatsApp chat groups, the, uh, the, the what happened on Clapham Common, um, the Cressida Dick situation. It, policing is more controversial now than when you joined, isn't it? Oh, yes, I'm sure it is. Uh, it's much more overtly political. It, it's always been... There's always been a political element to policing, mm. but in the past, I think it was kept very much in the background. Uh, chief police officers, yes, of course they talked to senior politicians, of course they talked to senior civil servants. Policing fundamentally is about mediating the interests of different groups of people, the rich against the poor, the, the right against the left, of, of always standing, if you like, on the fence in the middle and, and having stones thrown at you from both sides. Yeah. Uh, so it, there's always that political element to it, but I think it's become much more overt, and I think part of that is that we now have a mayor who has a major influence over who the commissioner is and over the strategic direction of policing in London, uh, who's of an opposite party to the Home Secretary, who also has an overriding interest in policing. Um, so it, it, it's inevitable that it has become more so. It doesn't always help itself, does it? And I'm just thinking about, you know, being overtly political, you know. When an organisation called Black Lives Matter hit the streets of London, I mean, I knew who they were from my time in America. You know, we saw police officers taking the knee, almost being given a free pass to take the knee. That must have been... I mean, what did you think when you saw that? Surely that was an error. It saddened me, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know that... I know some of the officers who actually thought that they ought to do that and who were genuinely well-motivated doing it. They mm. thought it was yeah. an appropriate gesture. I'm afraid my view is rather old-fashioned that once you put the uniform on, you, you, you're not supposed to do gestures of, whatever, any, whatever of, you, of, of either side. Yes. yes. Whatever you think about the political stance of people in front of you, whatever you think about their class, their race, whatever, that's your problem and it stays inside the uniform and you treat everybody the same and you do not do anything. Party political gestures would be even worse. Thankfully, we haven't seen that, uh, although it's been 
a very narrow squeak, not getting drawn into the controversy around Partygate, around Beergate, yeah. around being seen as partial. And what a, I mean, the responsibility now on Durham Police is astonishing, isn't it? I feel desperately sorry for Dur Durham Police. Uh, with Sakir having said he will resign if fined, and his deputy having to go the same way, mm. uh, they are actually faced with a decision about whether or not they decapitate the Labour Party. And maybe the Prime Minister too, if one and knocks onto the other. the Prime Minister too. Now, if they go one way, they will be seen as partial and, and outrageously right-wing. If they go the other way, they will yeah, be seen to have given in to pressure from the local police and crime commissioner who is on the Labour side of the political divide. Do police and crime commissioners work? Police committees never did work. You're retired now, you <laughs> say what you think. <laughs> Police committees were never as effective as they should have been. They were never as challenging. Uh, I can only speak about, about London. Um, they were never as challenging of, as they should have been, I don't think. And I think if you ask the average man in the street uh, about who was a member of their policing committee, they would have asked you what their policing yeah. committee was. Yeah. I think police and crime commissioners have become slightly more well-known, but frankly, not much. And they've been a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, I was always very concerned about the idea of uh, police and crime commissioners, simply because they have the say-so over the appointment of a chief constable. And if they express a view, it's a very brave chief constable who will go his own way. Yeah, they're elected on increasingly small turnouts, and yeah, exactly. I, I, it's not really firing off, is it? One issue that was interesting in yesterday's Queen's speech was, you know, some potentially quite tough legislation to deal with this phenomenon of insulate Britain, or Extinction Rebellion, but insulate Britain in particular, you know, brocking roads, there's Lambeth Bridge behind us where there's a street carnivals yeah. were going on, um, and these this presents the police with great challenges you know we even saw insulate britain attempting to stop newspapers coming out of a yep. printworks yep. I, I mean these people are pretty full-on and we see some shots here on the screen of you know people gluing themselves to roads and all the rest of it and now this legislation if and when it goes through uh, will mean that people will face six months 12 months in prison for acting in this way um what would you say to you know young police officers going out to deal with people who are gluing themselves to the road. How do they... I mean, it's not easy, is it? Of course it's not easy. Well, the first thing I would say is I'm glad I'm not having to face that problem now. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the reality is that the power of the police service is about the way that the public sees it as, broadly speaking, legitimate. Um, it's an old joke. I think it was Robin Williams who said, you know, that the, the American police say, stop or I shoot, or shoot and then and say, stop. Whereas the English police will say, stop, or I'll say, stop again. Yeah. But people, yeah. by and large, do stop yeah. because they regard the police as legitimate. People don't obey the law because they think they're going to get so locked is up. Is respect for the police still so there? Respect is crucial. Legitimacy is crucial. Now, part of that legitimacy comes from as allowing people to express political views, however unpalatable we may find them, as long as they do it within yeah. the law. Yeah. Now, if they're doing it within the law and, for example, sticking themselves to a road, it's really difficult to deal with. But that is part of the political processes of this country. So this legislation should help policing in a way by saying it's illegal to do that. 
In a way it will, but I think the danger is that it's seen as... Part of the legislation suggests that protest becomes illegal when it becomes almost inconvenient. Yeah. Now, inconvenience, yeah, a very flexible yeah. term. Your yeah. inconvenience yeah. isn't going to be the same as mine. Yeah. And I don't think a... Supposing we were to have a very far-right uh, Home Secretary, they might have an even more uh, extreme view of what is inconvenient to Londoners mm. or to, to anybody else. Uh, so you could end up with the police being almost forced into a position of not just policing political protest, but actually suppressing it. And once police start to suppress political and protests, that's where the balance, go, where the the balance, balance goes right. and legitimacy yeah. will start to fade away. One of the reasons why the police have a bit of a problem with the public is things that were considered quite serious crimes 20, 30, 40 years ago, like house burglary, you know, where the police would come and visit. Uh, and now we often don't get a police visit, you just get a crime number, and it's kind of a reflection, isn't it, of the fact that there's so much more crime going on today in London than there was, and in other big cities than there was just a few years ago. You know, one of your claims to fame is that you reduced burglary in Havering when you, when you were in charge there. How did you do it? Uh, I made myself a real nuisance to every police officer on, on my division. Yeah. Uh, it was the one single focus uh, that I had, and every morning, every morning, I insisted that on my desk were details of every domestic burglary we had, okay. we had in the previous 24 Interesting. hours. Interesting. And then I actually went to see the police officer who was dealing with it, the investigating officer, because over and over again we had to say, this is our most important challenge, our clear-up rate at the moment is zero. Now that's simply not good enough. People here think we're absolutely wonderful, but actually we're not stopping them getting burgled. So you were uh, a tough boss, were you? Well, I like to think I was a nice boss. Um, is, that, I don't, is that what the officers would say about you? By and large, <laughs> they thought I was a decent boss. They knew where I stood and they knew what I thought was important. Uh, I ended up uh, quite soon after I started there, actually, uh, with um, a little ceremony where if somebody had arrested a burglar, uh, I went to see them and presented them with a bottle of scotch. It was a bottle that big. I, I had in my bottom drawer miniatures. <laughs> and word went round that this is what the governor thinks is important. And people worked harder. We, um, there were all sorts of systemic problems we had to fix. So they responded to leadership, but basically. But they responded to somebody saying very clearly, right. that's what's important. That's what gets recognised. And isn't that what the Met needs right now? Now, we could argue about Cressida Dick, but she's gone. And I know you, have, you, know, you said she was a good cop and she worked very hard over the years, all the rest of it. Who do we need next? The current generation, it, it, I've been gone for 10 years now. Yeah. So I don't really know the current generation. I do know that the way that Cressida was, was treated will have discouraged some very high quality people from even wanting the job. Uh, that's not to say that whoever gets it isn't of the right quality, but it certainly makes the search for a good commissioner more difficult. Mm. But they've got to set out what their priorities are, they've got to back their people when they get it right, and they've got to very obviously go after their people when some of them get it wrong. And some of them will get it wrong. You know, it, it, it's a bit like infections in hospitals. We, we don't criticise a hospital for disinfecting everywhere. We don't criticise surgeons for washing their hands before an operation. Mm. But the day that, that it's, it's publicised that the Met has arrested people for corruption or arrested people for 
whatever horrendous crime they've committed. That's almost seen as, well, we knew there was something wrong with the police. You know, it's what you do about bad behaviour. It's not easy, is it? And you know what? We haven't had time, Stephen, to talk about terrorism, knife crime, so many other things. Uh, but thank you for all the years you've given to policing. Thank you for joining me on Talking Pines. Let's cross our fingers that the Met gets a boss that is respected by not just police officers, but the general public too. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed. For Good health. Me. We're coming towards the end of the programme. We've got two minutes left. It is time for Barrage the Farage. You send your questions in. I do not cheat and look at them before I promise you. And I've kept Stephen Roberts here in case I get some tough ones. John asks, here we go. Knife attacks are still soaring. What is the answer to stop this hideous crime? We've got to keep on getting it across to young people, and it's predominantly young men, that if they go out with a knife, it's unlikely to end well. So many of these kids, so many of them, think that carrying a knife will make them safer. Yeah, and it's absolutely yeah. not true. Yeah. I started my service dealing with knife crime, picking up kids who've been stabbed off the streets. And it's still going on. And that's the message we've got to get across. And it's not just the police. Stop and search. Stop and search is part of the answer, but so is mental health care for teenagers who are, who are troubled. So is putting police officers into troubled schools. So is social services. There's, There's no a whole one, range. No, There's no, no one, one answer. answer. No, 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 no. Mary asks, should the government abandon the Northern Ireland Protocol regardless of the retaliation from the EU? Do you know what I think, ultimately? Ultimately, do you think that Audi and BMW and Mercedes want to go on selling their cars in our country, which they call Treasure Island? Of course they do. Of course they do. There's no negotiation with the EU over Northern Ireland. They will not budge a single inch. We've got to get on and do the right thing. Laura asks, will you be watching Eurovision Song Contest on Saturday evening? Are you a fan of Eurovision? I'm afraid I'm not. No, that's a very <laughs> honest answer from Stephen. And I've got to tell you, I won't be watching because Terry Wogan's not there anymore. He made the whole thing. His delightful, wonderful, sarcastic coverage. I did try and get a bet on Ukraine to win, but by the time I tried to get my money on, it was too short a price. 